the reticular activating system and the Bader-Mind off phenomenon. So if you've ever shopped for like a certain car, let's say a red Audi or something like that, all of a sudden you start to notice red Audis everywhere, right? There's not all of a sudden more red Audis out there. That is a literal, beautiful example of your brain getting a message from you, what's important to you, and then helping you find more of that thing, right? Well, now replace the red Audi with gratitude, compassion, positivity, love. Your brain will start to work for you to show you more examples of that. Imposter syndrome, vulnerability, ownership, and the role of service as a form of accountability and self-leadership are all topics that we're gonna dive into today. In this conversation that I had with China McCarney, we talk about what his own mental health journey has looked like, the role that stigma played in perpetuating his struggles with anxiety and depression, and what some of the most effective tools are that he's learned along the way. China is the founder and CEO of the Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression Foundation, and he's also the vice president and CFO of Jager Sports Incorporated in Southern California. And the reason why China started his foundation, the reason why he started Triple AD, is because he deals with anxiety on a daily basis and felt the desire to be the change that he was seeking in the world rather than waiting for a change to happen. So now China's goal is to help everyone take charge of their mental health through courage and vulnerability and to help everyone be the change that they wish to see in their lives. One of the things that I love so much about China is that he is an avid note taker. He loves to learn. So over the course of this episode, you'll definitely hear us take a few moments to break and pause as China jots down some of the things that we're talking about. So if you are anything like China in that regard, you might want to grab a notebook and something to write with as well, because you are going to love the nerdy talk in this episode. What I didn't share in your bio earlier is that one of the reasons why I wanted to have you come on and one of the reasons why I wanted you to be one of the very first guests here for Talk Nerdy to Me is because you honestly emulate and embody the level of vulnerability that I want to have with my listeners and with the people who are tuning into this podcast on whatever platform they happen to be on. And you have overcome, and I've had the great privilege of witnessing you overcome tremendous obstacles in your own mental health journey and seeing you get to the other side and be able to speak so publicly about it and with such a high level of honesty and transparency is really, really inspiring for me and something that I wanted to bring bring here to this podcast. So I'm really excited to have you here with us, China, and I'm hoping that our time together today will help kind of set the tone for, for honestly, for me moving forward in what I want this podcast baby to become. So thank you so much for joining. Yes. No, thank you for uh, having me. And I think the name Talk Nerdy to me, everybody that I told that I was going to be on this were super, um, they love the name, they love the title. And the vulnerability journey, it's been a long one. There's been uh, definitely comfort level to have to try to get used to being vulnerable and sharing ugly parts and painful parts. But you are a huge part of that journey. Um, when we did the Instagram live and talked about working together and how many sessions we had together and... Uh, how everything comes full circle. It's pretty cool. And I'm excited to uh, kind of break down the mind uh, for you and your listeners for sure. Amazing. So let's start at the beginning. 
Can you share with everyone who's listening right now where your mental health journey started? Was there ever a rock bottom moment where you knew that things really had to change or that you just could not keep moving in the direction that you were going in? Yeah, there was definitely a rock bottom. And the journey, I'd say even as a child, I was a pretty good worrier. I definitely thought about things more than my peers. I could tell um, just by the conversations that were being had. But when it got really, really bad, it's when I started to experience panic attacks on a regular basis. Um, my first one was in 2009. I was a junior in college playing baseball, was on track to be drafted professionally. And I was driving up the coast and had a really bad panic attack, which the first one's the scariest one because you think it's a heart attack. You don't know it's a panic attack. And so I went to the doctor for what I thought was a heart attack, and they told me it was my brain. And that was about as deflated I have ever felt because it was such a physical experience. And to find out that it was mental and there wasn't something I could just go attack in that moment to physically accomplish it, it was very scary. And so I hit it for six years from 2009 to 2015. I didn't tell anybody. I tried to hide it from professional scouts. And it culminated in severe alcohol abuse, losing friends, losing girlfriends. And the rock bottom moment was in 2015. I had ordered food from The Habit and I could not physically get out of my car to go get the food because the panic attack was so debilitating that I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move. And so I broke down and cried and in my car by myself. And my dad had sent me a list of therapists sometime before that. And in that moment, I basically said to myself, you have two options. You either get help or you got to kill yourself because you can't live like this anymore. And thank God I chose the get help option. And I'm still here eight years later. But that's when rock bottom kind of happened. That's how the journey started was going to that first therapy session and getting permission to deal with what I had been dealing with all that time by myself. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think the thing that you said that really struck my heart the most is this vision of you in your car alone by yourself. And I think that that's an experience that's unfortunately extremely common in individuals who struggle with mental health and especially individuals who struggle with panic attacks and anxiety is that we all have a tendency to feel really, really alone in it because people haven't been talking about it. More recently, there has been this kind of social media wave of awareness that's been coming forward, which I feel super, super grateful about. But there is a tremendous role that I think stigma plays in keeping us alone and keeping us isolated and preventing us from seeking help in the first place. And so I know that, you know, back when you were first experiencing all of these things, you were in a professional baseball community where there was such a stigma around being mentally tough and mentally resilient. And I'm really curious for you what the role of stigma was in keeping you isolated and preventing you from seeking support for such a long time. Yeah, that's a, a great way of putting it. it. It's It was the power of the stigma, power of the judgment, and just intense ignorance in that world, right? And especially men. Men are not most vulnerable creatures, uh, much to the chagrin of women, because women are better at talking for the most part. There was just tremendous fear of being found out. And so I kind of talk about it in like I was living two different lives. I was living what people saw 
was a successful baseball guy, very strong. But on the inside, I was terrified, felt like an imposter, didn't feel like there was anywhere to turn. So I would turn to alcohol and partying and different things. But the the role of stigma and judgment in the sports world, for me and my personal experience, was the reason it took me six years to accept help because there was a fear that if I was found out, I would lose my baseball career. I would lose my friends. People would think I'm weak um, or weirdo because that's, that's 14 years ago now. And so if you had a therapist back then, you were considered something was wrong with you, right? And so now it's a little bit more normal where it's like they go to therapy. It still feels, in my opinion, stigmatized, but it is talked about more like you said. But I think there's a long way to go in terms of ridding the power of the stigma and making it a normal conversation to have. Absolutely. Something I want to touch on in what you just shared is that imposter syndrome is one of the manifestations of anxiety. It's directly interrelated and interconnected with our our fear response. And one of the characteristics of imposter syndrome is this phenomenon called pluralistic ignorance, which is when we each have the, <laughs> I can see you taking notes right now. For those of you that are listening, China is a compulsive note taker. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I've loved working with him so much. Type A student for sure. But pluralistic ignorance is this psychological phenomenon where we all are individually struggling <laughs> or suffering and we believe that nobody else is. And because of that, we keep ourselves isolated and we don't speak up and we don't talk about the thing that we're going through, whether it's imposter syndrome or anxiety or having panic attacks or being depressed. It keeps us all very much separated. And with imposter syndrome specifically, the one piece of research that's been continuously affirmed over and over and over again is that speaking up and speaking out about the thing that we're experiencing is the portal. It is the key to actually mitigating and minimizing the intensity of what it is that we're feeling. So vulnerability, you know, so much of what we're talking about today, vulnerability, and I think the experience of stepping into leadership and being somebody who's publicly speaking about these kind of things and sharing about them and talking about them is a tremendous part of the healing process and the healing journey. So I'm wondering if you could touch on that a little bit as well, because now not only have you made huge strides in your own experience of panic attacks, which I would love if you could share with the listeners a little bit more how that was affecting you previously. I know you and I have personally talked about, you know, going to Target and not being able to wait in lines or not being able to pick up your food and getting to the place where you are right now, which is speaking on huge panels at times to large groups of people about mental health and stigma and how we can facilitate change. Yeah, though, it's it's gives me goosebumps and like just so many emotions come up thinking about the whole journey as a whole. And I don't do it often enough because I think that's where the power is. If you can give yourself stillness and really analyze your entire life and all the things you've done and what you've gone through and what you've persevered through, it would make each day more enjoyable and it'd give you more confidence. And that's one thing I always say, if there was a product I could create for the world, 
it would be like basically a mirror that shows everyone their own story and how cool it actually is. But when we live it, we don't think it's that cool because it's just our everyday life and everything. But back to your your question is, once I founded AAAD and it became not about me anymore, it made the healing so much easier to work towards because it felt like no matter what the brutal day brought, I was going to use it as a lesson to teach others, right? And so when I started getting into that mindset, the panic attacks, they still happen to this day. It's 2023. I'm 14 years in. I still get them. Do I like them? Fuck no, I do not like the panic attacks. But in the moment, present day, when something starts to come up, I am able to take a step back and try to observe the lesson of whatever it is that's happening. Even if the lesson is sometimes you're going to succumb to a panic attack and lose, and that's okay because you still get to try tomorrow. But stepping into you know, a leadership role and mentoring people about real-world mental health and stuff like that has definitely made the journey with myself more tolerable and um, helps me detach in the moment for sure. But yeah, the... The panic attacks examples, I was just doing a video yesterday. I did not have a plan, which I loved. I just got on, I pressed record, and I said, I want to share as many examples I can share from the last 14 years of having panic attacks. And there was stories from needing to know where the restroom was when I was driving in the car for 30 minutes to a clinic because at one point it really upset my stomach, the anxiety did. And I felt with dealt with bouts of nasty things. Um, and then... Other times, like being in a business meeting and having the left side of my face numb and feeling like I'm having a heart attack, but not being able to do anything because it's my job and I have to be in this meeting. And and then, yes, the infamous Target shopping carts that um, I'd be in Target shopping like we all do. And a rage of anxiety would take me over and I'd have to run out. So I just leave my full cart of groceries in the middle of Target and sprint to my car go home, cry, fetal position. So vulnerability and being in leadership has definitely helped, but I don't want to give the listeners a false sense of like, oh, it's just all golden now because now, you know, I'm using it to teach. There's still days that, you know, are brutal. I still have battles with drinking binges, which we can get into if we want to at some point. So it's not all 100%, but I think that's the beauty of life is once you give yourself permission that it's not going to be 100% rosy, and that's what makes life beautiful. It gets a lot more easy to tolerate and get up the next day and try again. Absolutely. Something that I want to point out um, in what you just shared is that when we take the pressure off of ourselves to ever fully overcome our anxiety or overcome our mental health issues, we lower the stakes, which actually does make it significantly easier to make progress and move forward and start to work through some of these things. But when we approach our anxiety, when we approach our issues with mental health with the mindset of this is a demon I need to exercise from my system and it has no place in my life and I never want to feel it or be with it ever again, it makes it so much harder to actually work with it. So there's never just the anxiety or the fear in and of itself that we're attempting to work through. It's our relationship with both of those things as well. And part of the process is coming to a place where we can accept the 
level of uncertainty that, you know, we really don't know when another panic attack may or may not come. We don't know if we will never experience anxiety ever again. And learning to make our peace with that is a huge part of the process and the journey. Additionally, you know, in terms of leadership, when we step into positions where we are being of service to other people, it releases a tremendous amount of oxytocin throughout our nervous system. And oxytocin plays, it's a neurotransmitter that plays a critical role in helping us shift from a sympathetic nervous system state, so that heightened stress response, into more of a parasympathetic state or a relaxation response. So my guess is that for you, and I know for myself, this has been super, super true, that coming back to being of service to humanity, of putting ourselves out there into the world and trying to help, trying to make a difference, trying to be the change, in your words, is actually one of the best things that we can do to, on a biological, physiological level, work with some of the neurotransmitters that are causing us to feel so anxious in the first place. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I took some more notes because, yeah, that's... Um, I just had it. It's just so funny how fate works and the way timing is. I just had a moment where I got to teach somebody something the other day for the first time in a long time. It was numbers and accounting, and it's the stuff I do for my career. And right when it was over, I was like, you have to, you have to get more of this into your life because I felt like you said, you just feel better. It felt good to see their face light up when they started to understand what we were doing in different things. And a lot of the creation I do is just content creation. You post it on social media and you don't get to see the interactions as much. It might be a comment or something here or there, but it takes away the power of your own struggles. But then, like you said, because you were talking nerdy to me, is uh, basically get your system working for you, which is something I'm obsessed with learning about right now. I've been watching everything I can get my hands on that Andrew Huberman does. Um, he's a neuroscientist from Stanford that just breaks down things in a very real world sort of way and how we can optimize our way of living through certain activities that we can all do. Getting sunlight, cold exposure, stuff like that. His fifth one is community, and they're not in any order, but what he says when you're in service of others or around people that you love, what it does for your biology is just incredible. Absolutely. Little shout out right now, though. In addition to being all those amazing things, Andrew Huberman is also my future husband. He just <laughs> does. He doesn't know it yet. I keep harassing him on social media to love me, but he he won't respond. Um, something that you mentioned for that I would love to talk about if you're if you're willing to. And I know you made the offer before, but you mentioned how you had previously and at times still do self-medicate with alcohol and binging alcohol. What's been going on with that? Yeah, alcohol. Speaking of Dr. Huberman, I've been watching his episode on alcohol and the damage that it does to try to fear monger myself and never touching the stuff again. But alcohol has always been one of the places that I can go that turns my brain off or the part of my brain that is always on thinking, create this, do this, this, this. And then I hit a burnout and I want to turn to alcohol 
um, for a number of reasons. But what's interesting is last week in therapy, I was talking about this with my therapist because I'm in a rut right now with alcohol currently, which is just bizarre. But she asked, she challenged me and said, you're not turning your entire brain off. What part of your brain specifically do you want to turn off when you drink? And I was like, damn. But in like 0.2 milliseconds, I said guilt, like within seconds. And I was like, okay, like that's first of all why I left therapy because you get asked a question you've never thought about. I've never thought about guilt and drinking. And she goes, oh, explain. And for the first time ever, sentences were coming out of my mouth that were obviously in my brain because I articulated them great for her. And I said, when I sit down to watch like a basketball game, like during March Madness, I have to have like notes in front of me or like be doing something that I feel is productive or else just watching the basketball game makes me feel guilty. Like I'm not doing enough with my mental energy, right? I'm not being productive. Mr. Perfectionist got to do everything. And if I play video games with my buddies, I'm like, you're 36 years old playing video games. Like you should be reading stoicism or you should be meditating or you should. And then I have the worst royal flush when it comes to alcohol dependence genetically. Like my dad has a blackout gene. My mom has the blackout gene. Like we just do not do well. And we're Irish. So our bodies handle the alcohol pretty well. Uh, and so I've just been dealt a real shit hand with it. And it's been the one opponent that competitively I can't just white knuckle overcome like most things in my life. If I want to lose weight, I can lose weight with the best. If I want to write a book, I write a book in three months, edit it, it's out, let's go. Alcohol, because of the chemical, I mean, I'm learning every day about the hooks in addiction and how... You can't do it with just willpower and you got to do all this stuff. And so it's it's my number one opponent right now. And we've got a we've got a back and forth relationship where it wins sometimes and I win for a period of time. But my goal and what will happen at some point is it will no longer have a spot in my life. And I will just feel the emotions, be able to regulate the false guilt I'm putting on myself with being able to relax. So yeah, so that's still an ongoing part of the journey as well. And it's ugly. It's it's definitely ugly. I don't like the man I become when I drink alcohol for sure. Mm. I think it requires such a tremendous amount of courage to be able to share that with the world and to share very explicitly what it is that you're going through. And something that I haven't yet mastered, you know, I am someone who will share very publicly what I've gone through. <laughs> Once I feel like I'm at the other side, I really admire that in you. And I really appreciate you being so honest and, and vulnerable with me and everyone who's listening about the fact that you're struggling with that right now. Have we ever talked about cognitive distortions before? Has that ever been a topic of conversation? I know we discussed cognitive dissonance, but I don't know about distortion, but I'm ready to take some notes right now. I, I love that you have the notebook handy. Okay, so cognitive distortions are patterns of thinking, so patterns of cognition that are essentially skewed perceptions of reality. 
the way that I like to explain them, the way that I like to teach about them is that they're kind of like those old school, you know, at carnivals or festivals, the the fun houses, the, the wall of mirrors where you go in and it reflects back to you these very distorted images of yourself. So cognitive distortions are patterns of thinking that provide us with skewed perceptions of ourselves and the world. And in individuals who struggle with anxiety, they are often playing a huge role in the level of stress and distress that we feel because they provide us with a perception of reality that is very dissonant as well from the one that we are living. One of the biggest cognitive distortions that we struggle with as a population is should. And I just heard you say that so many times because when we use should, it implies that there's a reality out there that exists that is better for us than the one that we're living in right now. When we're constantly matching the reality that we're in right now to an alternative that we believe is probably better for us, it can be super, super stressful and guilt-inducing. And I know that you and I have talked about before that shame and guilt are one of the top underlying factors in the anxiety that we experience as adults. So when it comes to working through cognitive distortions, yes, of course, changing the behavioral pattern associated with it, changing what the numbing mechanism is, you know, refraining from the drinking is going to play a huge role in bringing up the guilt and forcing you to be with it and look at it. But from a cognitive perspective, I think that there's the opportunity to work, you know, from both ends at once. You know, it's not just working from the outside and changing the behaviors to change the way that you feel. But I also think we can expedite the process by working from the inside out with changing the way that you think. So I think for you, when you find yourself in that should, as my mother would say, when you're shoulding all over yourself, that's going to be a big red flag. It's going to be a big indicator that there's an opportunity to change what the inner monologue is and what the narrative is and come back to the alternative more honest version of reality, which is that being in a state of enjoyment, watching a game, playing video games with your friends, there isn't actually anything wrong with any of that. What makes it wrong is when you have the belief that there's an alternative that should be better than what is actually happening right now, which is just not the truth. I'm actually reading a book right now about I think you'll love this. It's a novel. I've um, made the decision this year, once again, after after six years of studying neuroscience and reading a lot of really dense, boring shit I that I love as well. You know, I, I'm such a nerd, but man, some of that stuff is really, really dense. I have committed to only reading for pleasure and enjoyment right now. And the book that I'm reading right now is called, it's it's actually underneath my microphone at this moment. It's propping my microphone up. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And it's about programmers that create video games. And I think you'd probably love it. And anybody who's listening right now, you'll probably love it too. The writing is very beautiful and poetic. The enjoying the moment. I always wonder how unique my struggles are mentally. Are they unique? Are they not? Because I thought my panic attacks were unique to me. Like you said, the pluralistic ignorance, which I love. Um, but I always wonder how many people 
struggle to just watch TV because I don't feel like that's necessarily a common issue. Some people just wait till it's five o'clock. They can't wait to go home just so they can just watch TV and that's their mechanism, which is totally fine. But um, I've had many people over the years tell me like basically to enjoy the moment and that for me, I always have a hard time not being focused on the next big thing. And I had the the most massive goal you could have built into my life from a very young age. People realized I was very good at sports, very young. So they always wanted me on this team, all-star team, this, this, this. And you're going to be the kid from our hometown that makes it to the major leagues. Like that's success. It was external. You're going to the major leagues. I didn't make it to the major leagues. I made it to the minor leagues. And so... I felt this very real label of, well, you didn't make it, you failed. Your entire life up until you're 25 years old, you're a failure. Like that was rhetoric in my head. And so then it was like, what am I going to do next? And then that's when the anxiety got really bad. And so from 25 to about 30, it was like, you just need to survive. Like just survive. Like don't kill yourself. Don't drink yourself to death. Just survive. And let's just keep, you know, keep going. And then coming through the other side, like all of the stuff, when you look back in hindsight, it's just funny to look at like, there's still reoccurring themes now. I'm just better at regulating them. And I think the next stage in the journey is realizing life is not always about having something on your plate, doing something productive. Like that's not going to be very fun. When you die, you're not going to remember all that stuff. You're going to remember the fun times you had with friends, the people that you helped, stuff like that. And I think that's where I'm kind of at currently is we're having me and my best friend moved here to work with us at Jager sports. And even today we we're just having these like existential crisis conversations about what is the meaning of life? Like, what are we doing? Like what, what's next? Um, and so, yeah, when I was, when we were breaking all that down, it just, it, it just came up. And actually I'll share this with your listeners. Cause this was a, a terrifying sentence that was in my head as well. Just like the one about guilt and alcohol, a few sessions back, we were talking about self-worth, shame, guilt, and a sentence. We're doing EMDR. So you meditate, like you watch something on screen and you kind of get into a different frame of mind than traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. There's some nerdy talk for us. But the sentence that came out of my mouth when we were talking about that topic was, if I'm not doing everything better than everybody else, I'm not worth, I'm not worthy. And it was like, damn, like that's in my brain of if I'm not waking up at 5 a.m., going on a five mile run, meditating, eating well, writing a book, launching a YouTube channel, going on podcasts, well, then you're not worth anything. You're worthless. And it was like, that is so flawed. And I'm glad it, we discovered it in there because now it's okay, let's get to work on the actual reality of that's there's no external worth it's your deeds it's you know your heart and we could get in all that but i wanted to share that because that's like a real visual example of you know the thought processes we could have that we don't even know we're having if we're not intentional yeah they can become so highly unconscious and create such havoc for us in our day-to-day life one of my longtime spiritual teachers and mentors 
Her name is Katie Silcox. I would love for her to actually come on the podcast one day. But she has this teaching um, about in, in Sanskrit, the word is dinacharya, which it, it basically refers to your daily ritual, your, you know, your more specifically your morning ritual, you know, the little things that you do when you wake up. And when she's teaching about this, when she's lecturing about this, the the way that she articulates it, I think, is just so beautiful. She talks about what do you want your life to be about? And can you make the small actions that you take every single day be a reflection of that? And for me, very similarly to you, I was in the vortex of productivity, just having to do, 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 achieve more, strive more. For years, I was, quote unquote, just a yoga and meditation teacher who had a fascination in neuroscience. And part of the reason why I went to school and subjected myself to six years of being like punched over at my desk, face buried in textbooks is because I wanted the credibility that comes with having a piece of paper that says the word neuroscience on it. And so I I feel you and I've I've been there. And hearing that question over and over and over again from my teacher, what do I want my life to be about? Yes, service is a huge part of that. That's, you know, one of my big three, service, God. So for me, connecting to something bigger than myself, and if you hate the word God, I use the word quantum field and God interchangeably. And then the last one for me is pleasure. We have this incredible human body that's capable of feeling and experiencing so much from swimming to surfing to running to laughing to kissing to you know like whatever it may be our bodies are capable of feeling and experiencing so much that being able to enjoy the gift that it is to be alive and have this vehicle through which we can feel i think is part of it why would we be here if we weren't meant to enjoy all the amazing things that come with having a human experience. And if for you, you derive pleasure and enjoyment out of learning and growing and being productive, I think that that's totally fine. I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I think where we get into trouble is where the absence of that leads us to feel guilty and shameful or brings up these feelings of not enough. Anything can be a numbing mechanism. Food can be a numbing mechanism, mindlessly scrolling on our phones, alcohol, substances, relationships can be a numbing mechanism. Busyness and productivity can be a numbing mechanism too. And when we participate in those things from a place of enjoyment, the experience is very different than when we cannot function without them. And you asked a question before of, well, can people just go home and watch TV without needing to be productive? And the answer to that is yes, there are some people who can do that. And there are a lot of people who use watching TV as just another way to numb out in the same way that you might turn to alcohol. We all have our numbing mechanisms. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with drinking. I don't think that there's anything wrong with watching TV. But I think that we can abuse any number of those things when we're not careful with what our underlying intentions and motives are and we don't understand ourselves. And that, I think, is the gift of therapy 
and the gift of community. And when we can get to a place where we're vulnerable enough and courageous enough to seek support, we're able to see ourselves more clearly through the relationships that we have with others and can figure out why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why am I behaving in the ways that I'm behaving? And when we're not satisfied with the answers, then be able to facilitate change. But it requires first that we're able to witness ourselves and see ourselves clearly. And that requires courage. Yes, that is incredibly well put. And the greatest gift in life for me was hitting that rock bottom. Because if I didn't hit the rock bottom, I would not have gotten to know myself at the level that I do now. And that's a gift that I wish everyone would have. Not Maybe not to go through the worst parts of it for sure shitting your pants on the way to a baseball clinic or something. That's not fun. But um, I didn't, by the way, I made it, but barely. But is showing people what it's like to kind of intentionally take inventory on your thoughts and exactly that question. What, why do you do what you do? What type of life do you want to have? And then structuring your life to go get those things, looking at the mistakes as something to learn from, keeping the tools that work for you and continuing on and just the compound effect, you know, 1% better, 1% better, 1% better over enough days, all of a sudden we're way better than we were. And so I loved how you said that because if any listeners are like on the fence at all about taking the excavation tour through their brain, it's going to be the best thing. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to cry. You're going to have to remember stuff you don't want to, but you're going to come through. It's so mentally chiseled and just in a totally different relationship with yourself, which then creates a different relationship with the external world and the people that you love as well. I'm just like cracking up over here to myself at the word mentally chiseled. I have in my mind this image of like a brain that's also a beefcake. <laughs> if you want to be a brainy beefcake looking at yourself and growing your level of self-awareness may be a really important part of that process. Yeah. Something that I want to share with the listeners is that when we're, when we are just deep in living our patterns without awareness, it, it sucks. It's pretty painful. In my experience and in what I've seen in others, the most painful moment, though, is that moment of awakening where you become aware of all the shitty patterns that you're participating in. And that kind of like gut punch moment of, oh, fuck, what have I been doing to myself? And what have I been doing to the other people in my life that are inevitably impacted by it? So just because we start to foster a level of self-awareness doesn't mean that things immediately get better. I usually always give the disclaimer to my students and my clients that we usually feel a little bit worse before we start to feel better again because it is so painful to see ourselves clearly in the beginning and then we can start to make the changes and then it starts to it starts to shift. But I'm curious for you what some of the most important tools are that you've used to take care of yourself and improve your own mental health? Yeah. So first and foremost was therapy, making the decision to get help. Um, because that, what I always say to people is that immediately doubles the size of your team, right? 
Mm-hmm. And you're doubling the size of your team with an expert in the field. That's what they do. They've done the research. They've had to do the hours and all that stuff. So therapy is something I'll probably do in some capacity until I die. I love it. Um, and I'll go through spurts. Like right now, I'm kind of reaching a little burnout. Like I'm sick of talking and I just want to live. And then I'll come back to you with some data in a couple months and then we'll we'll go over it. Um, but I think that's a great place to start. Sleep. So I have certain things that I call non-negotiables. So there's sleep. Like when I don't sleep well consistently, I am a different human. I am meaner. I am shorter tempered and there's all kinds of nerdy talk and science behind that, but sleep is a non-negotiable for me. Hydration, I feel this is just personally, I drank at least like one or two of these. I'm showing for the listeners, I'm showing Alex my gallon bottle of water that I carry around with me. It's absolutely ridiculous, but I feel better when I'm hydrated. Um, exercise, I was an athlete. I'm still an athlete. I'm just a all 36-year-old athlete. Um, but I like moving. I love sweating. Um, I, we're getting close to summer months here in California. So we'll be at the beach running around on the sand and different things like that. Self-development. Like you said, learning is something that brings me joy. It releases dopamine. I can tell because when I'm doing it, I get fired up. I like talking, taking notes about pluralistic ignorance and cognitive distortions and all that stuff makes me happy. So sleep, exercise, hydration, learning would probably be my four where I started and I wrote the mental health manual in 2020, 2020 during COVID. I wrote a manual called the mental health manual and companion journal where each chapter goes over one mental health resource that's been shown by science to benefit people. And I approach each resource in a what, why, how approach, very simple writing. What is the resource? Why can the resource improve my mental health and how can I implement that resource into my life? Um, and I tell a lot of people just start there cause it's just you and your thoughts. And there's a companion journal that asks questions about the resource that you can write and keep the resources that work. I call it a mental health recipe recipes, have ingredients to make the recipe better, right? So keep the resources that work for you as an ingredient to your best mental health recipe. And it'll change over time. What helped me four years ago doesn't help me today because my journey's different, but that's kind of the beauty. But yeah, sleep exercise, therapy, hydration, meditation, meditation, meditation. I didn't mention that. Meditation, especially early in the day to set the intention for the day has been a game changer for me. When I'm consistently doing that, I play better golf. I'm nicer. Like it's pretty wild to watch what a little bit of intention with your brain can do. Absolutely. So something that you mentioned that was imperative for you that has been imperative for me as well is therapy. And I am always, always advocating for therapy to everybody that I know. I personally love probably too much (laughs) therapist. Everybody in my personal life knows him by name. So we'll just give a little shout out to Dr. Bethko, world's greatest therapist. I always like to tell people he's like the Robin Williams to my Goodwill hunting, just the best. And before I get a ton of emails and DMs about how to get in touch with him, he's been trying to retire for years and years and years now, and I won't let him. So he's not taking on any new, (laughs) he's not taking on any new patients right now or clients. So you can't get in touch with him. But what you can do if you're somebody who is needing support with therapy is actually reach out to China. So 
China, do you want to share a little bit more about Triple AD, what you're doing there, and the resources that you have available to anybody who's seeking support? Absolutely, yeah. So Triple AD is the Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression Foundation. Um, it was founded in 2016 when I shared my story on social media about my mental health struggles. No one knew at that time. It kind of went crazy. And so I started a foundation that... The way I say it is I want a real world approach to mental health. Like I love the science stuff. It's just not what I'm great at. I want to destigmatize it through everyday examples. Um, but our number one resource that basically all of the money that we raise goes towards is paying for therapy for people in need, because there are tons of barriers when it comes to therapy. If you try to go through your insurance, it might take months. If you try to pay out of pocket for yourself, it could be $150, $250 an hour. And there was a six-year gap between my panic attack and my first therapy session. And I don't ever want someone to suffer from six years, six days between problem and solution or problem and access to a resource that's going to get you closer to the solution. And so if you contact AAAD, we're partners with BetterHelp and we get you set up within minutes. You start filling out the questionnaire. They match you to a therapist. And then we pay for two months of free therapy, which at BetterHelp can be up to eight sessions. You have unlimited access there as well to text, email to your therapist. But I just think it's such a great, safe place to explore your thoughts without bias. Because it's hard to talk to a buddy about suicidal thoughts or about, dude, I left a grocery cart full of groceries at Target and almost pooped my pants running out of there. Like your buddy's just going to laugh at you. And in the male world, in the locker room, they're going to make fun of you. So I think therapy is a great place to start. Um, and if, yeah, anybody that's on the fence, I would just encourage you to try it because the way I felt leaving my therapist, it's her home office back then in 2015. Um, I cannot remember a single word I said in the session, but I can vividly remember when I sat down in my car to leave feeling as if my lung capacity had gone to like Michael Phelps level because I could breathe like it was gone. The weight was gone. And that feeling over time became so addicting that I wanted to be more vulnerable to everybody because then all of a sudden the power I was giving to these things I was hiding went away. It's like, hey, I'm trying to have anxiety. I have panic attacks. Like, who cares? Like, what do you got? We're all screwed up in some ways. So what do you struggle with? And maybe I can help you. And I've only just recently been doing that about alcohol because there's a very, there's a weird just, our society and alcohol is so bizarre because there's both pressure to drink, but then judgment if you drink too much. And that could be a whole nother episode, but I've only more recently been doing that because A, it's going to help me be more accountable because now everybody knows. And so if they see me partaking somewhere, they'd be like, hey, didn't you say you struggled with this or whatnot? But yeah, therapy just gave me permission to start being myself. And once I started being myself in every aspect of my life, I realized I had a lot more mental energy because I didn't have to remember the lies I was telling people about how I was doing. It was just like, oh, no, I'm fucked up today, man. I, I don't feel good at all. Like, sorry, you know? So it, it becomes very empowering, to be honest, and to be vulnerable. 
And that's not to say it's not terrifying at the same time, because it is for sure. Absolutely. It doesn't ever stop being scary. <laughs> yeah. You just get better at learning how to navigate the fear. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to include a link to AAAD in the show notes. And then you also mentioned the mental health manual before. I was wondering if you could share just a little bit more about where people can download that, where they can buy it. Yeah. And who it might be a good fit for. Yeah. I'll give I'll give away the secret. I'll be a terrible businessman right now. Um, so you can buy it on AAADfoundation.org. Uh, you can get all the information on there and you can buy it and we'll ship it to you. Um, if you email me, typically I'm sending it to you for free. I'm not going to lie. I'll Because uh, I'm not trying to make money with AAAD. I need to raise money for AAAD to help people. So we're doing a lot of events, one with the Braves. We do a golf tournament. So we, we need money for sure to help the people. But with the manual, if somebody's in need, the last thing I want to do is create a $40 barrier to get a manual and a companion journal. So I'll always send the digital copy for free. But um, you can find the info at AAADfoundation.org about anything, the whole story. And there's a place on the website, actually, where you can tell your story if you want to try to be brave and vulnerable and share it uh, to the world on AAAD as well. <laughs> you know what we call that over here in Alex Nashton and China McCarney? dialogue is an AFCO <laughs> stands for another fucking growth opportunity. So if you're listening right now and you want to subject yourself to a big fucking growth opportunity, I think that would be a really good place to go share your story. And if you do have the $40 to give to a really great organization in exchange for a super, super helpful resource, I would highly recommend that. And then tell us about the daily mental health. What's going on with that? So the daily mental health uh, came about because of what we've been talking about on here is my obsessive need to produce and challenge myself and different things. But I've found a lot of people. So on social media, there's so many metrics that are just hilarious. And a lot of people value their self-worth based on likes and views and this and that. And what I've noticed is the best metric is let's say one of my videos doesn't do too well, but then I'll see somebody that I haven't seen in a while. And they're like, Oh my God, I'm loving your stuff you're doing on social media. And it's like, well then hit the fucking like button, bro. <laughs> like but a lot of people will watch it. Um, but I was doing mental health messages infrequently, but they were being well received. And so I started doing them every single day, 60 seconds or less, just, some sort of mental health message, a tool that can help people, something I've dealt with in my life. And then a lot of people were reaching out to me saying, dude, I'm loving this. Keep it up. This is awesome. And so I was like, well, I've never really dabbled in the YouTube space. And so I'm going to do, it's launching today. So every single day there will be a YouTube short, 60 seconds or less. Every Monday on a mental health Monday, I'm doing a longer form video, five to 10 minutes, I'm breaking down the one I just did that's going to come out next week is on meditation. Another one that I did is I try to remember every negative story I could from my mental health journey to paint a real world picture of like, this is how panic attacks can affect your life. And then once a month, I'm going to be interviewing people like this and I'm definitely going to involve people in the mental health space. Like I'd love to have you on. I'm going to be interviewing celebrities. There's a picture for the Atlanta Braves who'll be on. But what I'm really excited to do, and I'm going to have to twist some arms because they're not excited about it, 
is I want to interview friends and family members of me and talk about how hard the mental health journey was and what they saw from their perspective. And it's going to be, you talk about vulnerability. They're going to have to be honest. They're going to have to be mean a little, you know, because there's going to be certain things that I did. What I, I'm hoping to do with that channel and that specific example of interviewing a friend and family is create a different type of mental health education that's not in a textbook. This is real world. This is a friend from my, this is my dad. This is my ex-girl. Whatever it is, she wouldn't be up. She would say no. But uh, <laughs> they all would. Um, <laughs> but I want people to see other people communicating about it so that maybe one in every 10 person that watches it is like, you know what? I need to be more honest or I need to be more vulnerable or this doesn't look as scary as I thought it would be unless it goes terribly wrong in some of these episodes. But yeah, that's daily mental health on YouTube. If you do at daily mental health, um, you'll get a short every day. It's free to subscribe. You get a short every day, a five to 10 minute awesome video on Mondays, and then a really funny, awkward interview once a month um, with somebody related to the mental health field or a celebrity that's dealt with some of the same stuff. So it's awesome. I'm excited about that. I'm so excited to both to watch and to listen. And yeah, I would absolutely love to come on and talk to all your people about mental health, my own experiences with it, and also be be vulnerable. China, I cannot thank you enough for being one of my very first guests over here at Talk Nerdy to Me and setting, I know we've talked a lot about setting low bars and lowering the stakes, but um, thank you for setting such a high bar for me in terms of the level of vulnerability and transparency and honesty I want to bring forward to however, however long we continue on with this podcast. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time. And I know all the listeners are going to be really appreciative as well. If you're listening right now and you want access to any of those resources that China mentioned, they're all going to be in the show notes. And you can find China on social media, as we mentioned, YouTube, Instagram, anywhere else that they can find you. Yeah, pretty much all socials at China McCarney. So China like the country and then McCarney's M-C-C-A-R-N-E-Y. And uh yeah, I think one thing, the last thing I want to share with your listeners is the most nerdy thing that I know about the brain, and you will know way more about this, but I have all in love with the reticular activating system and the beta mind off phenomenon. So anybody out there, if you've ever shopped for like a certain car, let's say a red Audi or something like that, all of a sudden you start to notice red Audis everywhere, Right. There's not all of a sudden more red Audis out there. That is a literal, beautiful example of your brain getting a message from you, what's important to you, and then helping you find more of that thing, right? Well, now replace the red Audi with gratitude, compassion, positivity, love. Your brain will start to work for you to show you more examples of that. Replace that with negativity, victimhood, hatred. Your brain doesn't have a good-bad filter. It has a you filter. It shows you what you want if you do the work to put it in a position to do that. And so that was literally what has changed my life is being intentional with what I want my life to be and bringing in smart, beautiful, loving people like Alex to help me on the journey. 
And that's why my life has changed and why I didn't commit suicide and why I'm still here is because I realize life isn't perfect. I realize that our brain is incredible if we use it for the right reasons, but you got to be willing to wake up every day and put in the work. And so if you use the reticular activating system and fall in love with that principle, it's one of the coolest things in life when you start to realize that your brain is changing because of work that you're doing for positive things. And Alex, you had a massive role in that. These 80,000 pages of notes in this digital workbook right here would, would tell you how big of an impact you have. So I appreciate you having me on and um, it's been quite a journey so far and there's plenty more to come. There's so much more to come. Thank you so much for saying all that, China, and sharing it with everybody. I'm really, really grateful for your time today and can't wait to share this with the world. Thank you. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashton for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. Each episode that you share and tag me in will be to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast, baby, is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just want to help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I want to thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality, and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night, I can't even tell you how many times, when I've been freaking out about this podcast. Adam, you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius. I am so, so grateful to have you in my life, and I love you tremendously.